Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans and chapter number four. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you. You could grab that Bible and turn in it to page 121 in the back, and you would be at Romans chapter four. Now, we have been involved in a series of messages that Mark and I have been doing this fall entitled Frequently Asked Questions About Christianity, or FAQ. And I want to remind you that we've been doing this for a number of weeks, and if if you look at the slide here that lists all of the various questions, we've been covering a lot of FAQs, Frequently Asked Questions About Christianity. Today, the question we are coming to is this. Can anyone be really sure of his salvation? Can anyone really be sure of his salvation? Now, that question that we're tackling today is actually, in reality, one of the broader questions that we're tackling in this series. It is somewhat a catch-all for several core concerns that people have. We may ask the question, can anyone be sure of his salvation? But it really is a question that includes a lot of other questions, like what about those who claim to know God and later firmly reject the faith? Or a question like, isn't it possible to sin in such a way that you forfeit eternal life? Or how about this concern, isn't it possible to falter in faith and ultimately lose your salvation. Somehow we fall from grace and we annul eternal life in our life. Or how about this concern, which is certainly a concern that comes up when someone says they're sure of their salvation, and this concern would be, it just sounds a little arrogant, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound a little arrogant for someone to claim that they're sure of their salvation? And what we could do today is invest a whole series of messages on all of these related concerns, and we could fully address them, and we would probably be here till the first of the new year. But what we're going to do today is corral a lot of these concerns and and give a measured answer to them. So what we're going to do today is take a two-pronged approach. The first thing we're going to do is to remind ourselves of the nature of true salvation. And that just sets the context for all of this. And then we're going to look at four core concerns that relate to this idea of really being sure of our salvation. So that's where we're going. You know where we're driving. Let's begin by zeroing in again on this idea of the nature of true salvation. If you have your Bible open to Romans chapter 4, I want you to look at verse 5. It says there, But to the one who does not work, this is talking about how we receive salvation, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies, which just means to declare righteous, the ungodly, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith or her faith is credited as righteousness. Now, last week's question that that Mark so ably handled was, 
is salvation really by grace through faith. And Mark pointed out that Jesus wrote the check to fully pay our debt. On our own, we are spiritually bankrupt, but Jesus has all the resources that we need. And if salvation depends on me, if it depends on what I do, if it depends on what I contribute, how can I ever know that I have done enough? Years ago, there was a young woman by the name of Tammy who came to Wildwood. And Tammy was a Jehovah's Witness. Tammy came out of a family that was deeply entrenched in the Jehovah Witness movement. Her father was very highly ranked as a Jehovah's Witness. And Tammy, because she grew up as a Jehovah's Witness from the time she was born, was very highly trained in Jehovah Witness theology. And if you don't know, Jehovah's Witnesses spell salvation D-O. There are these things that you must do in order to acquire salvation. And I had an opportunity to meet with Tammy in my office, and I, I knew this about Jehovah's Witness theology. And we had this little battle for a little while. It was a little batting back and forth biblical truth. But eventually I asked her, Tammy, how sure are you of your salvation? And Tammy's reply was, well, I'm not sure. You can never be sure. And so we spent some time, and I I ultimately shared with her the gospel message. I shared with her the truth of biblical Christianity and how salvation is ultimately spelled D-O-N-E. It was done fully by Jesus Christ. And it wasn't exactly at that moment But within days, Tammy made the choice to believe in Jesus Christ's work, to trust in it, to count on it for her salvation, to to say his work on my behalf fully paid my debt. And if you'd like to read more of of Tammy's story, it's actually available online. Uh, If you go to the online site for, that's the numeral for, Jehovah.org, forjehovah.org, and you look at testimonies and you click on Tammy, you can read uh, her whole story in detail. But see, the real question that she was having to wrestle with is how good is good enough? And, and, you know, we've talked about several times, and Mark took it back to us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, what the standard is in God's eyes. The standard is Jesus said, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, that's the standard we would have to reach. And that bar is impossible to reach. But Jesus Christ cleared the bar. His perfection met God's standard, right? Jesus' check cleared God's bank. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, it says this, that God the Father made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the way that transaction works? My sin goes on to Christ. 
and then his righteousness comes to me. You know, there are basically three ways to look at acquiring salvation, and it can be illustrated by three circles. Uh, The first circle has a W in it. That stands for works, what we do. So some people would say salvation is by works. It's by what you do. Another circle has a C plus a W in it, and that stands for Christ plus our works. Yes, I need to have Christ's work, but then I add my works to that. And then the third circle is a circle with just a C in it, and that stands for Christ alone. So I'm telling you right now, everybody fits into one of those three circles. Now here's what is interesting. For those who view it as works, what we do, Christ's death in reality is unnecessary. Why would he have to die if I can work my way in, if I can do enough? It really becomes a cruel joke that Jesus would have to die. Someone who says, well, it's Christ plus some of the things that I do that I have to add a little bit to it. In that situation, Christ's death is disappointing. I mean, it must be a little defective. It's a defective gift. It didn't pay for everything. But when we embrace the third circle where it's Christ alone, then we, we realize that Christ's death is sufficient for my sin. And 1 John 2.2 2 talks about that, where it says that he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Interesting word. It's a legal term. It means the full payment for. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So if our assurance of salvation hinges on anything but the finished work of Christ, we are without hope. Now that's just reminding us of the nature of salvation. The second thing we want to do now is begin to answer these core concerns, and we want to look at four core concerns. Here's the first core concern. What about those who claim to know God and later firmly reject the faith? You know, in in a spiritual community, in, in the church, there are two kinds of people. There are those who are, we could say, an outward professor of faith, and there are those who are an inward possessor of faith. The church, any spiritual community, always has those two. It's true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament, it's true today. And someone who is an outward professor of faith will give lip service to being a Christian. They will practice a lot of outward appearances of being a follower of God. And you think, well, how can you illustrate that? Well, you know the, the, the guys who had a reputation for this in the New Testament era, they were called the Pharisees. And they were nothing more than outward professors of faith. Now, outwardly, they were the ultra-religious guys. If you ask the average person, who are the most spiritual people, they would always say it's the Pharisees. They had the lingo, the language down. They knew all the prayers. In fact, Pharisees never missed a prayer session. You know that in those days, they practiced prayer three times a day. There was a morning prayer. There was an afternoon prayer. There was an evening prayer just before nightfall. And the Pharisees never missed ever 
missed those prayer sessions. They never missed a gathering at the synagogue. They never missed a gathering at the temple. Outwardly, they were these professors of faith. See, part of the problem with people is that we only get to view the outside of them. But God sees the heart. And Jesus really unmasked them because he saw their heart. And over the years, this has happened I don't know how many hundred times, people have come to me and they've said, Bruce, what about this person? And, you know, they, they have a name, an individual. It could be a family member. It could be some friend, somebody that they knew. And they say, what about those people? And they'll tell me a little of the story, you know, that, that, that they outwardly were doing all these things and now there seems to be uh, some rejection that's going on. And what, what about those people, Bruce? And here's my answer to them. It's a consistent answer I've given. They're either, either an outward professor or they're an inward possessor. And which one are they? I say, I don't know, and you don't know, but God knows. So for me, when someone's like that, I put them in what I call the question mark box. It's only a question mark to me. It's not a question mark to God. And there's some things that I do know. I do know that if someone is a, an inward possessor of faith, if they're a true child of God and they wander off, God promises in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11, that he will discipline every true child of his. And I really think that's what the prodigal son was in the New Testament. I think he inwardly was a possessor of faith, but he decided he wanted to go on his own for a while. And guess what happened when he did that? God disciplined him, and then he desired to come back to his father. I could use my, my youngest sister, whose, whose name is Laurie, as an illustration of that. Laurie grew up. Uh, had a profession of faith, and I really do think that she was an inward possessor, but she went into a period of rebellion that is, it's amazing to even follow. But you know what? God was disciplining her. If you ever read her story, she'll talk about some of the things that God was doing. And eventually, you know, she came to her senses, just like the prodigal son, and she walks with God today. And so when someone comes to me about somebody like this, I say, well, I don't know. They're one or the other. They're in the question mark box. What we can do is that we know that God knows, and so we can simply pray. And so we, I would encourage people, and I've prayed for people like this. God, if they are your child, discipline them. You promised that you would do that. And if they're not your child, God, I pray that you would open their eyes to truth, that you would bring them to the end of themselves. Can anyone really be sure of salvation? Well, a second concern that's related to that we want to look at is this. Isn't it possible to sin in such a way that you forfeit eternal life? Now, now when we're thinking that thought, have that concern, part of the problem is we forget that sin is more than our actions. Sin includes our thoughts. Remember how Mark reminded us of that last week? How we went to Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, where it says, Anyone who even looks at a woman with lust in his eye has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
See, sin is a whole lot more than we tend to look at. It includes our thoughts. Now, follow me here. If our salvation depended on us being without sin, (laughs) we'd all be disqualified. I mean, we're all going to do that because it includes the very thoughts and intents of our heart and our mind. Notice what it says in Colossians 2.13. Through the cross, it says, God has forgiven us all of our transgressions. How many transgressions are included in the word all? All of them, obviously. Now, some people would say, well, 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 Wait a second now. You know, all my past sins were in there, but not necessarily the ones I would commit and the ones I might commit tomorrow. But remember this, that when Christ died for your sins, all of them were future. Every single one of them. And if some sins can somehow annul our salvation They were not covered at Calvary, but all sins were covered at Calvary. My wife Janet and I have been been married for 40 years, and, um, you know, we view marriage to be a covenant relationship. It's a a permanent relationship. But I'm going to confess to you today that even though we've been married for 40 years, we we both still make mistakes, and, and, and we both still disappoint one another. There are days, yes, there are, when we have a poor attitude. Maybe one, maybe both of us. There are days that we say things that are less than kind, where we say things we know that we shouldn't say. Now, when that kind of stuff happens, you know what it does? It hinders and diminishes our fellowship with one another. Now, we may have been married 40 years, but when we're in a period like that, we're not exactly having the best fellowship with one another. But it does not shatter our covenant relationship, that sense that we have a permanent relationship together. And so it is with God. You see, there are times when we're going to make mistakes and we're going to disappoint God. There are days we're going to have a poor attitude. There are days that we're going to say some things we shouldn't say, and maybe even to him say some things we shouldn't say, or have some attitudes that way. And what happens is that will hinder and diminish our fellowship with him, but it's not going to shatter the covenant relationship that we have with our God, a permanent relationship. Now, it may, it may be it's several times in the Old Testament and New Testament, it says it could roadblock our prayer life, But there's a remedy for that, and that is just like with, a, with your spouse, you know, you have to confess that your attitude was poor and your actions were poor, and then there's sort of a freshening that happens with your fellowship, and the same thing happens with God when we apologize to Him and we have a fresh start, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a reestablishment of that fellowship. 
Now, another issue we want to look at, another concern that relates to this overall question of can we be sure in our salvation is this one. Isn't it possible to falter in faith and ultimately lose your salvation? I mean, what if somehow I just don't keep going? I, I, I slip away from the, the hand of the Lord and I lose my grip on eternal life. We want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 and verse 28. And uh, we have the page number in, in the Bibles under the chairs. It's right on the screen that you can see. But John 10, uh, 28. And Jesus is talking here about his sheep, those who are his followers, those who are the believers in him. And notice what he says in verse 28. He says, I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And I love this phrase, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, if someone has trusted in Jesus Christ as their rescuer from sin and judgment, if someone is an inward possessor of eternal life, if they are a true child of the King, it does not mean that we will never falter in our spiritual walk does not mean we will never struggle with questions and doubts about God. I've done that. It does not mean there will be never times when our faith is weak. Now, now here, here's important. This is a very important clarification. If someone thinks that to be a Christian, you will never falter in your spiritual walk. You will never struggle with doubts. You will never have times when your faith is weak. You know what you'll end up being? A class one spiritual neurotic. That's what you'll be. You will be absolutely paranoid and in constant fear that your faith is too weak. What causes us to think that way? Well, we're back into that thinking that it depends on me. Many of you know I have uh, three grandchildren. The third one is my granddaughter, Kinsey, and Kinsey is two. I have a couple pictures up there. Um, the one picture there that's on the left, uh, we took on Halloween when she had dressed up as a princess. Could there be any cuter princess than Kinsey? But Kinsey, you know, has, has just been going through toddlerhood, and what was true for Kinsey was true of my other two grandchildren and true of my four kids. You know, there's a, a phase that toddlers go through when they can very easily trip and fall. And, you know, they think that they're walking well, but they seemingly can just trip over any crack in the concrete. I remember one time when she insisted on walking with herself, by herself that way with me, she, she actually just tripped on her own two feet and went down and, you know, popped her chin, you know, on the concrete. Once they begin to realize that they could fall, then, then there's something they like to do. And Kinsey likes to do this right now. She likes to put her hand around my index finger. And when she has her hand around my index finger, that gives her some confidence, you know, if something were to happen that I'm there to help hold her up. But you know, the reality is, when she has her finger around my index finger, if she trips, she's not strong enough to hold on. 
That's not going to work. But when I put her hand in my hand, it makes a difference. And that's happened a couple of times when I thought we were going over some turf, you know, where she could trip. And, and she trips, and guess what? I hold on to her. And I even help pick her up again if she's in the process of falling. I want your eyes to go back to John chapter 10 and verse 28. He says, regarding my sheep, he says, I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. This structure in the original language is so strong We could translate it this way. I give eternal life to them, and they will never, absolutely, positively, no way, ever, never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. You see, men and women, salvation is not based on my fortitude. Salvation is based on his promise. If it is based on my strength and based on what I do, I will never be secure. And what is amazing to me, I will never get over this in all of my life, that if we falter, if there are times in our life when we really know him, when we are faithless, 2 Timothy 2.13 says that if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Let me ask you this question. How many people have ever been on an express elevator? Let me see some hands if you've been on an express elevator. So a number of you have. You know what an express elevator is. It's where you get on on the first floor and you skip a whole bunch of floors to go to the particular floor that you may be headed, which is usually at the top. And you know, a classic illustration of an express elevator in the United States of America would probably be the express elevator at the Empire State Building in New York City. What happens is you get on on the first floor And you go from there to the 86th floor, which is the main observation deck of the Empire State Building. Now, if you would, just imagine that Kinsey and I get on the express elevator. And she's been on other elevators. She understands how elevators work. And I tell her, look, this elevator is going to deliver us safely to the 86th floor. But when you get on that elevator, it somewhat jerks to a start. Imagine, even though I'm holding her hand, Kinsey gets a little bit afraid. And maybe she feels uncomfortable because there's a lot of people on here and she's feeling pressed in on. And maybe even part of what happens because you go up so far so fast is that your ears pop because of the change in altitude. Maybe Kinsey begins to doubt that we're really going to make it to the 86th floor. And she may even break down and cry, you know, have an emotional breakdown being concerned about it. But guess what? No matter what actions and reactions Kinsey has on that elevator, I have her hand the whole way, and that elevator is still going to deliver us to the 86th floor main deck. And when we trust in Christ we actually walk on to an express elevator to heaven. Now, along the way, the ride might get a little rough here and there. We might get disconcerted just a little bit. 
We might begin to doubt that we're even going to make it. We may not even have the best of reactions. And yet still, he will have our hand the whole way, and he will deliver us into heaven in the presence of God. Can anyone be sure of his salvation? There's a fourth concern that relates to this we want to address, and that is this. It sounds arrogant. Doesn't it sound arrogant for someone to claim that they're sure of their salvation? Well, here's what the Bible has to say. John chapter 5 and verse 24. John chapter 5 and verse 24 says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, which was just an idiom in the day for saying, you can double count on what I'm about to communicate. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. One of the reasons why we do Bible study is we try to observe what's in the text and part of what you want to observe are the verbs. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has not will have sometime in the future, but has present tense eternal life. You see, eternal life begins when someone hears and believes in Jesus Christ. And at that point, we have it. And if it's eternal, by definition, it means it has no end. When do we have eternal life? The moment we trust in him. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has, here comes the next key verb, has passed out of death and into life. And that verb there is what's called a perfect tense in the original. It talks about an event that happens in time and the ramifications just continue to go on. You see, when we hear his word and we believe him who sent me, we pass in a point in time from the arena of death spiritual death, to the arena of spiritual life, and the ramifications of that go on. This is an interesting word when it talks about being passed out of death into life. It's a word that was commonly used in everyday language for moving from one place to the other place. You move from Norman, Oklahoma to Dallas, Texas, you would use this verb to describe that change in location. And that's what happens when we hear and we believe there's a change of location from death to life and the ramifications of that go on. Well, isn't it, isn't it arrogant for someone to claim that they're sure of their salvation? Not if it's based on the words and the works of the creator of the universe. It's not. And let me just flip that upside down for a moment. You know what I think true arrogance really is? True arrogance is to believe that somehow I can be good enough to impress a holy and righteous God. That's really arrogance. And we could say so much more about this as we answer this question, can anyone really be sure of his salvation? We could go into, um, for example, the sealing of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. We see that taught in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, in chapter 4 and verse 30. How when we believe, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is an imagery that guarantees our safe delivery into his presence. So much more we could have to say to answer this question. Can anyone really be sure of his salvation? 
And the answer really is, if it depends on my goodness, what I have to do, no. If it depends on Christ's goodness and what he has done, yes, yes. Now, as we close today, I want to just talk about very briefly some life response that we can have. And I don't know where everybody's coming from. God knows where you're coming from. But if you're here today and you are unsure of your salvation, you can make sure today. It's a matter of hearing the message about who Christ is, what he came to do, and then believing in that, trusting in that, counting on that, making that eternal decision, yes, I'm not going to rely on me, I'm going to rely on what Jesus Christ has done. And when you make that transaction in your heart, which is something I did in a point in time, something that Tammy did in a point in time, when you do that, you can be sure of your salvation because he will do what he's promised to do. Also, I know that many of us here today would say we are sure of our salvation. We know where we stand with Jesus Christ. And a life response that we can have is to do two different things. Number one, to praise him. How long has it been since you took enough time to say to God, thank you for what Jesus Christ did for me. I want it just to ooze out of my pores. I want to praise you for that. And then secondly, by, by way of life response, is that we can live for him. You know, because of what he did, I, I want to live differently. I want to honor him with our life. Let's pray together. And then we'll conclude with a final song. Father, we just thank you for the Bible again. We thank you for the clarity that it gives us. And we thank you that we really truly can be sure of our salvation because it doesn't depend on my goodness. It depends on Christ's work on our behalf. We're just grateful for that. And if anybody who's hearing my voice today, whether it's you know, electronically or just personally right now, I would pray that you would just open their eyes up to the reality of who Christ is and what he's done, and that they can know the joy of trusting in him for salvation. And for all of us who know you, Father, oh, we just praise your name. We're so grateful that you're never going to let us go. And we want to honor you with our worship and with our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.